1: enlightenment and with a little luck some wisdom this is nightlight a reminder that you are never alone I hope
2: everyone had a great Valentine's weekend. We're extending it another day because who doesn't love our guest, Zelia Edgar? And to celebrate the occasion, Nightlight has some new sci-fi music. <laughs> I hope that isn't a copyright infringement of some YouTube show I watch frequently. Um, But what better way to say be my Valentine or I love you than to gather around the computer, have uh, nightlight on, and hear Zillia discuss UFOs, cryptids, Sandown Sam, and Killian Philosophies. Zelia's been a guest with us about uh, three times, two or three other times. Um, and tonight we will be discussing her uh, printing debut, or publishing debut, Just Another Tinfoil Hat. And you can learn more about Zelia by going to her website, just hat dot com. Hi Zelia, how are you?
3: Well, I am fantastic. Thank you. Very excited to be on the show tonight, and thank you very much for that fantastic sci-fi theme song. I mean, that's I'm better than rolling out the red carpet. So thank you.
2: Uh, well, uh, you inspire me with, you know, your, oh, uh, yeah, uh. I'm not going to say cheap uh, sound effects, but it, it, it's a low, you're, you're very effective at uh, utilizing low budget stuff. You know,
3: thank you. But like for heaven's sake, a, don't yeah. call it cheap. It was free. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but thank you very much. I, I do love like, you know, the old classic, um, like the B movies, mystery science theaters. Like I love that so oh, yeah. much. So that's kind of, Again, I I take the paranormal very seriously. I don't take myself too seriously, so I try to have some fun with it.
2: Uh, That's that's why you're here kind of like on a regular basis. (laughs) I don't don't take myself too seriously either, but I really enjoy having guests on uh, to do book reviews, and I think we're going to have a fun two hours discussing your uh, th- uh, this is your first book right yes it is
3: I'm very okay. very it, excited it, about it too <laughs> well
2: uh y- you should be because it is a terrific book you have was something like 23 captivating uh paranormal cases yeah, it's a wide range of topics
3: Yeah, 23 cases and then lots of discussion kind of intermixed um, about, Mm -hmm. you know, the different theories and stuff. Yeah.
0: Okay. So um, let's
2: maybe look at two or three, you know, kind of get us started and, you know, maybe we can kind of get into uh, looking at patterns that, uh, you know, like, say, for example, uh... several of the uh... case studies where dogs play a central role and kind of like combine maybe about three or four uh... stories there but you know before we get into that let's maybe uh... start with the um... for the first one uh... and that one is really interesting uh... the um... no incident Oh, yes. Eh, yes. Eh, uh, oh. Let's get into that one. It's what said in the 1880s or something like that.
0: Yeah,
3: that, is, that case is um, a really important one for me because, um, you know, it's, it's a very personal case, actually, because I grew up in Wisconsin, of course, the America's uh-huh. scary land, pretty much. And I'm very proud of that fact. Um, and growing up, even though I'm actually from, you know, I've lived in central Wisconsin, I spent a lot of time at my grandma's house in southwestern Wisconsin, in the Driftless area, um, she lives in Platteville. And, you know, the amazing thing is that not only was I able as a kid to hear personal accounts from family members of their strange experiences, whether it was the haunted house where my mom grew up to multiple UFO encounters that certain family members have had had. Um, even my grandma, when she was a kid, remembered hearing this story where this big hairy arm, had burst in through a neighbor's window. Um, so I got to hear all of those you know, personal accounts. But two, I was also really fortunate to be kind of enveloped in the folklore of that region. And so the very first account in my book is one of the first particular you know, accounts that I remember hearing from my grandma when I was a kid. And that is the um, Nodolph incident, or as it's known in Platteville, that strange night. Um, So, yeah, sometime in the late 1800s, there was a farmer by the name of Carl Nodolf, and he lived in the stone house, which actually, it's amazing. It's still there on the side of the Platte Mound, um, which is also home to the largest hillside M in the world, the Big M. Um, I've climbed up that mound, gosh, dozens, if not, maybe even some hundreds of times throughout my life. Um, And so the stone house is actually still there, it's very dilapidated, you know, it's private property, but you can still see it, you can still drive by. Um, so anyway, to get back to the story, in the late eighteen hundreds he occupied that house with his wife and his two young children, Minnie, Louise, and Louie. And so at the time of, you know, the infamous night, Minnie was four and Louis was two, and there was this particular summer night where there was a huge storm which ravaged Uh the mound. So the two parents waited it out for some time, then decided to turn in for the night. Suddenly, in the middle of the night, Louise was awakened by the sound of her children crying. And so, of course, she thought they were frightened by the storm. She went to check their beds, and they were gone. So then she roused Carl, and they started looking for them, and the kids were not in the home. So, obviously, they were very concerned, but there was no way the kids could have gotten outside. The windows and doors were still bolted and locked from the inside. Uh However, as they started tracking the sound of their kids crying, it was evident that they were indeed out in the storm. So the two parents ran out to go get them, dragged them inside. It was just a total torrential downpour. They got soaked. They ran to get the kids dry clothes. And then they realized that somehow the two young children weren't even wet from the rain. They had been out there for who knows how long, but they were completely bone dry. Now, the way that I heard the story when I was a kid is the very common way that it's told around Platteville, which is that from that point on, both of the children had a terrible stutter, and they could actually never, you know, say what had really happened to them. However, thanks to Todd Roll, a local folklorist and historian, um, he actually uncovered this clipping from the Platteville Journal where actually one of the descendants came forward to say that that was a falsehood. Actually, you know, they could talk just fine and she should know it was her mother and her uncle. Um, so hmm. that part of the story is pure um, legend. But as for the rest of it, you know, it stands as a really anomalous kind of piece of folklore that you know, there is kind of some recollection of. Um, because even beyond that particular strange night, the house from that point forward was said to have been haunted by almost poltergeist-like manifestations, specifically the sound of someone, quote-unquote, stumping up the stairs every night at three in the morning. So, and it's just, I, have I've that case, again, it's a very, it's a personal case for me because I remember hearing it when I was very, very young, you know, before my definite, you know, interest in the paranormal, quote-unquote. Um, you know, I've grown up listening to that and having that being part of the local folklore from, you know, where my family is from. So it's definitely very important to me and a very weird case too. You know, a lot of people have tied it. Some have speculated, Hey, what if this was an alien abduction? Um, Other people have pointed out that, you know, there's a lot of connections to the fairy lore of the changelings and how Mm -hmm. certain people would just be picked up um, oftentimes associating this with storms, which we even see with the missing 411 phenomenon. Um, and then you add in the poltergeist-like manifestations, and it certainly makes for kind of a very, you know, paradoxical and strange case.
2: And th- there was some missing time involved as well.
3: Specifically, the fact that the two children were not, um, you know, soaked through. I mean, they had been out in the rain mm-hmm. before their parents got out there, and somehow they were still dry. So that's. You know, again, missing time is always kind of hard to pin down unless someone's like, you know, looked at the clock and then um, realized that time passed without the recollection. But we can say that definitely something strange happened here. Um, it reminds me, too, of many cases, especially in poltergeist um, phenomena where, you know, it's the app where things or people sometimes simply disappear from one location to reappear at another with no real um, transport from point A to point B. They're simply there one minute, gone the next and somewhere else. Um, so there was definitely mm-hmm. a missing segment of something um, to make it so that the kids were, again, absolutely bone dry when they had been out in the downpour. Um, and two, the fact that the windows and doors were all bolted still from the inside and the kids were too young to even reach them. It definitely right. makes for a very anomalous experience here.
2: You well, know, it, it, I think that was one of those it, – it's – probably one of the earliest uh time periods when you know the story all, all the stories are set uh but it, it's well placed at the beginning to really pull you in it, it, it's uh you know, like, like what you said about the apport um you know, There's the possibility of um you know the the uh working in the folklore uh beliefs to explain it. it it just uh it is one of those stories that really captures your attention right off the bat and and uh how did people get outside uh when you know the little kids were Probably too small to lift the even uh reach the toddlers they uh and they wouldn't be tall enough or strong enough to lift the latches on on the door or if it's you know like the big bar ac- across the door but how ha- how'd they get outside and, and it's almost like uh you know like uh what was that uh murders in the Rue morgue where you have oh to, yeah. Uh, Like a locked room uh, mystery, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I I really liked how you placed uh, that one to get the book started.
3: Thank you, and I I know starting it off on you know really personal note for me too. It's like I did. I grew up listening to this story, and um, you know bringing in kind of that family background because I do feel very Mm -hmm. fortunate. You know, a lot of people in this field um, have a lot of kind of kickback from their families. Like, oh, you're really interested in this. Well, you shouldn't be, you should be into, you know, something more respectable or whatever. And um, that wasn't the case. My mom and her family were, you know, they were always very open and being like, you know, just follow what you're interested in. Follow, honestly, follow your heart with this. And that has meant so much to me, um, especially moving forward and now having this book, their support has been, I feel very, very lucky. So yeah, starting it off on that note was just the right way to go for me.
2: Good and I think uh I always heard about the uh Loveland Frogman but it really hadn't um read a case study about that incident, and until I read your book, so I kind of, think, you know, was encountering it the first time. Um, when I started reading, um, just another tinfoil hat, and I, I thought that was uh, a real, really interesting case, um, you know. Give us uh, uh, some of the background, and then we can kind of dissect it as, uh, you know, we get in, into the evening. I I, I, like, I really enjoyed that one.
3: Yeah, of course. I mean, the Loveland Frogmen, and yes, I do call them the Frogmen because would you believe there's more than one? Um, that's a mm-hmm. really intriguing case for me, too, because, of course, the Loveland Frogman is really infamous as kind of a cryptid. Um, And that particular case occurred in March of 1972. It involved several law enforcement officers who saw this, you know, for all intents and purposes, frogman, this bipedal frog-like amphibious looking creature um, along an icy roadside. And as intriguing as that case is, and there's a lot of, you know, back and forth here where they said that it was definitely something strange. And then they kind of redacted that and said, so, oh no, it was just the sick iguana and then years later um I kind of redacted what they had previously redacted, but actually no, it was something truly bizarre. So as weird as that well known case is, if you go back to nineteen fifty five, you also have a spate of sightings that are truly if they can even be more bizarre than the frogman man, these are more bizarre. Um, they began in May of nineteen fifty five when a gentleman by the name of Robert Honeycut was driving home from work around three thirty in the morning. And as he was driving, he thought that he saw, as he said, three crazy guys praying by the side of the road. So he slowed down his vehicle to try and get a better look at, you know, these three crazy guys praying by the side of the road when he realized he wasn't actually dealing with three crazy guys at all. He wasn't necessarily even dealing with something human. Instead, what Honeycutt was facing down then were these three beings that he summed up in two short words, fairly ugly. He claimed that he saw these three strange little entities standing by the roadside. Um, they're in a kind of triangle sort of formation, with one standing at the front and two behind it, and that they were lopsided. One side of their body was markedly larger than the other, and that and I absolutely I love truly bizarre little entities. If that's not obvious from my um, my work here, but these guys mm-hmm. are some of my favorites. They were this kind of grayish color all over, and Honeycutt claimed that they were wearing a garment that appeared to be the same color as their skin. And you see that a lot with um, UFO occupant clothing, where the garment tends to match the skin tone. Um, It seemed to be tight-fitting on the torso and kind of baggy on the legs. However, their face and head are definitely the most interesting part of their description. So they had almost kind of a frog-like slit for a mouth, and eyes that Honeycutt somehow described as normal-looking However, the weirdest thing about them is that in place of hair on their foreheads was something that Honeycutt said looked like when a baby doll has kind of that molded plastic hair texture, which I, it's such a bizarre, bizarre detail on these little beings. I just absolutely love it. So there were three in total, and the one closest to Honeycutt, closest to the shoulder of the road was holding something in its hand that he described as looking almost like a sparkling rod or chain, which was kind of emitting these blue-white sparks. And at one point during the encounter, all of the beings were holding their arms above their heads, um, almost like it was some sort of like a holdup or something. Um, And at one point during the encounter, the first being actually dropped its arms and appeared to tie this object around its legs. Now, the intriguing thing about this So Honeycutt, throughout this whole encounter, said that he wasn't frightened at all. He was just interested in what these beings were doing. Simultaneously, however, he also really believed that they were communicating with something across the road in a deep patch of woods, which I'm really, really interested. Whenever you have witnesses um, to strange events, they always come out with these weird little beliefs that they suddenly have, saying that these things appear to be communicating something or they were communicating with Mm -hmm. something or they had a purpose. And I find that to be a really intriguing and very consistent um, statement by witnesses, which is just, I mean, it's a little unnerving if you really think about it, um, but also very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. So throughout the duration of this encounter, though, Honeycutt was not afraid at all, even when the beings all simultaneously at the same time turned to face him. And at one point, too, as he was coming around his vehicle to get a closer look of these things, they actually made, again, another simultaneous deliberate motion towards him, which he described as graceful. Um, How these lopsided, frog-like, Loveland gnomon could be graceful is kind of, you know, that might be the strangest thing about this whole encounter. However, at this point, he received the impression or got the psychic message that he shouldn't come any closer and suddenly decided that, you know what, he wanted to get someone else to see this thing. And I think this is a really important point to nail down as well, which is that when Honeycutt got into his car um, to go get someone, it wasn't because he was frightened in any way. It was because he simply wanted someone else to witness this bizarre event. However, as he started driving away from the scene, that is when sheer terror hit him. He was also hit with a bizarre odor of like fresh cut alfalfa with a slight trace of almond, which apparently he and a girlfriend would experience several months later when driving through the area. Um, so as he experiences this odor, he also is hit with sheer terror about his experience. And he actually drove to get the Loveland police chief to report his encounter. Um, so the chief actually did go back to the area. And, of course, as we often see, saw nothing. However, really intriguing here, too, is the fact that, actually, Honeycuts was not the only encounter at this time. There were other sightings around that same time frame of strange lights in the sky. Um, another gentleman saw four small beings underneath a bridge. Um, and then there was a mm-hmm. truly bizarre encounter in the neighborhood of Loveland Heights, Um, which involved actually two families who kind of experienced different sections of the same event. Um, And I love stuff like this because very often, you know, when you have these really bizarre encounters, what you're looking for is for some sort of confirmation that it actually did happen, that there was something going on instead of just some hallucinatory or dreamlike event. And so with the Loveland Heights encounter, it's amazing because you kind of get confirmation that something was indeed going on. Um, a woman named Emily Mm -hmm. Magnone and her husband were actually awakened in the middle of the night by their dog just going absolutely berserk. Um, And again, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you see in many of these encounters that people's dogs really pick up on something going on when people have paranormal Mm -hmm. encounters. So the couple got up, they checked the house, and although they saw nothing, they actually smelled something that they described as this terrible swamp like odor, which was so bad that they decided to close the window. In spite of the fact that by this point in time, it was a very, hot, um, humid summer night. So even foregoing their personal comfort, they decided to close the window because the smell was simply that bad. Now, interestingly enough, while they had no visual sighting of anything going on, their neighbors actually did. Now, their neighbors were also awakened by the Magnon family dog going totally crazy. And so the neighbor lady went to the back porch to see if there was a prowler or someone trying to break in or something like that, and instead saw about 15 feet away from her house what she described as something that looked like a little man covered in twigs or foliage. Now, as weird as that is, it gets even weirder when she flips on the porch light and it totally vanishes. Now, she actually stood there for some minutes flipping the porch light on and off, and each time she flipped the light on, the being was gone, she would turn it off, and it would return. So, again, she had this visual of a strange creature. Um, She was wakened by the dog going nuts. The other couple also was awakened by the dog responding to something, and they also smelled this terrible odor. Um, and this was, again, in the same year when Honeycutt had his infamous encounter of the three Loveland gnomes. So this brings up, I mean, so many interesting points. Because for one thing, what I really love about this is it illustrates something that you see very often with flaps of strange occurrences. Um, you know, many times you have a UFO flap. And sure, maybe there will be a handful of sightings of the same object. But more often than not, you'll actually have sightings of several different objects all going on at the same time. It's not like there's simply, you know, a flying saucer mark, um, you know, FS-250 that just parks in the local woods and flies around at night and people see it and they can all say this is exactly what it looked like and it had a fender and it had a propeller and that's what it was. Um, Instead, you may have something like that and then you may also have sightings of orbs. You may also have sightings of a huge orb of light. You may have star-like objects. Um, In one great case, the walking tree, someone even said it looked like spinning Christmas tree lights. Um, And so oftentimes when you have these um, flaps of anomalies, it's not one thing being reported. It's a whole handful. Um, And it even crosses the boundary then until you'll have a UFO flap going on, at the same time people are reporting Bigfoot or mystery big cats. And so this case with the Loveland Frogmen of 1955, it's amazing because, yeah, you have a handful of encounters of people seeing strange little beings. It's just that one guy saw these, you know, plastic baby doll hair textured head things and someone else saw something that looked like it was covered in foliage and someone else saw just kind of three or four nondescript little men near a bridge, all while people are also seeing strange things in the sky. So this was, I mean, a very bizarre year with several very bizarre reports. And all of that was, you know, a good decade before the infamous Loveland frog man.
2: Yep. so this the, the the loveland case says are – what there's something like uh 17 years apart yep there's uh, multiple eyewitnesses so uh yeah that that's important as well uh You can believe one person's story, and you know they could be a good storyteller too. Uh, but you know you do have uh, some cases, you know, and you know the Phoenix Lights case had maybe thousands of eyewitnesses. It had mm-hmm. when you have a situation like this with multiple eyewitnesses. Uh, Do do you find that a case case study has more credibility when you're um, researching it if you get various perspectives from eyewitnesses who saw something – years maybe almost decades apart you know a couple decades apart
3: oh like with loveland having like the spate of um sightings in the 50s and then again in the 70s yes you know that is a good question um for me you know i tend to look at a lot of these cases as um almost personal to the witness and that's mm-hmm. one of my great questions personally is like you know how much influence does the place have on this you know when we think a lot in the conventional terms of like specifically hauntings or even cryptids we tend to think of them as belonging to a place Um, whereas with ufos we don't necessarily think of that i mean there are ufo hotspots definitely um, but we tend to think of ufos you know in the conventional sense again as kind of just passing through now it does seem in my opinion that there are certain places that do appear to be simply haunted by anomaly and it does tend to be across the board, you'll have more, you know, ghosts and hauntings, poltergeist phenomena, cryptids such as Bigfoot or even, you know, super weird mm-hmm. cryptids such as the men, um, and UFOs. Um, but as far as, you know, more credibility, you know, I think that that really, for me, that is a case-by-case basis because, uh, you know, there are a lot of cases too where it's like, and I was actually just um, thinking about this today, where it seems as though the phenomena will sometimes Um, tend to single someone out. You have a lot of cases, too, um, such as the Cisco Grove incident, where even though there was confirmation, actually, by um, the the main witness, Donald Trump's uh, two friends, about this strange thing that they saw in the sky, you know, the real event, um, the very high contact part of the case, it seemed to wait until he was alone. Um, And so, yeah, the credibility scale is it's definitely case by case for me. You
2: know, you you can look at the um Betty and Barney Hill case, they had far more to lose than, than gain. Oh yeah! By by going po- uh, public and, and making some of their calls to, when well, like an air force base and, and involving other you know, high profile type people, oh. uh, it. it you know the the these uh you know the frogman eyewitnesses witnesses um it, it seem like they this is just a routine thing trip um uh, down the road I, I i don't know what you know they're trying would be trying to get out of uh going public with their uh, our reports
3: Yeah, and that is one of the most, that is actually something that tends to up the credibility for me is oftentimes, um, and I remember one of the first times I was exposed to this concept was actually through Linda Godfrey's work, um, where she said that tons of the reports she gets, because one of the questions that she got from, you know, mainly skeptics was, well, what were they doing out at two in the morning? And she's like, oh, well, they were coming home from work. They were coming home from the family members. They were just doing something that they did all the time. It just so happened that on this particular trip, they saw this, you know, six foot tall wolf-like biped. (laughs) And so that's definitely something that when someone can give kind of the basis as to, you know, effectively, where were you on the night of August 6th, you know, and give a very standard, well, this is why I was out on this road, you know, it's nothing unusual, um, that does tend to up the credibility for me. And again, very often, a lot of these cases, it's people doing the things they would just do normally it's just that on that mm-hmm. particular day or that particular night something strange happened um and that's
0: mm-hmm.
3: something that is really deeply important to me because i think when we look at the paranormal um again people who are interested in it um i know i'm a perfect example of this i can kind of get really lost in like you know all of this stuff just almost becoming yes it's paranormal but almost becoming normal for me but the truth is is that there are lots of people and people that i've even talked to um throughout you know these years that had no interest, um, or even were skeptics, and then suddenly it happened to them. And I think that that's a very important thing to remember as we research this.
2: Yeah, uh, um, I'm really glad I read that case. I th- found it to be just compelling reading, and Thank you. Uh, it's you know, um and get into. Spent, spent a little bit of time on the um Hopkinsville goblins i you know, i'm sure a lot of the listeners have seen the um the Netflix show and I, yeah, it it really is uh another fascinating case I, I, um oh, that was um they were at the Mothman Festival a few years ago. Um What's the name of the show? Just,
3: oh, the Hellier? Just,
2: yeah. That's it. Yeah. Um I just drew, drew a blank, blank on that. Um but that uh, that's you know we had a couple samples of uh, you know uh, cryptids and you know re- really unusual uh, Phenomenon you know, like the uh, the Nodolf in incident, um, but you know you also with the Hopkinsville uh, goblins, you, you you get into uh, some of the uh, ET UFO kind of uh, stuff. Yeah, you know, I'm just trying to show the uh, diversity of topics in your book. So let's get it a little bit in. You know, get a little bit of. Uh, background on the uh, Hopkinsville goblins.
3: Absolutely. Well, this is another case from 1955, so the same mm-hmm. year as the Honeycutt encounter um, with, you know, the Loveland nomen or Frogman. And the Kelly Hopkinsville case is definitely one of the classics of UFO occupant encounters. And again, I always use that term lightly, um, and I'll just pin that down right now. We, For me personally, I truly don't really hold fast to any particular you know, mindset about these things. I think that there's probably a bunch of different right answers. So, but as far as terminology, UFO-related entities or UFO occupants, this is one of the great classic cases. And, of course, it was near Kelly, Kentucky in the summer of 1955. And interestingly enough, and the amazing thing is when you read, you know, some of the source material and the interviews of this family that it was involved with, You know, even just hearing about the people involved was really intriguing because the first um, instance of something weird happening on this night was that a man by the name of Billy Ray Taylor was staying with his wife, June, at the Sutton Langford family home. And on August 21st, he claimed that he went outside to retrieve water from a well and see a silver spaceship shooting out rainbow-colored flames. Now, when I first read about this case, um, I don't remember which rendition I read, but you know, whatever it was said that he returned to the house and informed everyone, hey, I've seen a flying saucer, and the entire household just didn't really care, and I thought that was hilarious, and as you go through the interviews, apparently, that was kind of just you know how they looked at him. He was a little bit of a um, kind of an attention hog, I guess, um, which is really intriguing, um, kind of a jokester. Now... Apparently, I don't know if he had said that prior to the events which happened later or if he just kind of added that on later um, But the intriguing thing is that if indeed he said that and it did or didn't happen He must have had some sort of prophecy because it was mere hours later that everyone in the home Was absolutely besieged by these by now infamous little silver men um, so it was around 8 o'clock in the evening when Again, the family dog began acting up and actually dove under the house, where it remained until the following day. And Lucky, one of the family members, was the first to look out of the side and see this strange glow in the fields, which looked like it was coming closer towards the home. So he was soon joined by Billy Ray, and together they saw um, that the light was actually not just a light or a glow. It was actually caused by a little man floating through the air towards them. Now, much like the honey encounter too, this being was actually holding its arms up over its head. And, I mean, truly, this case is just absolutely insane because, you know, they thought it was bad enough with just one of these little guys. They actually started shooting at this being, which just would respond Mm -hmm. by kind of flipping over midair and drifting lightly to the ground and running off. They were besieged in about six separate waves of these strange, luminous, floating creatures. And this happened throughout the night, and it was just so constant. Um, They would see the things coming. They would shoot at them. There would be absolutely no effect. Um, In many of these cases with cryptids, UFO occupants, um, I mean, there have even been cases, Summerwind is a great example, one of the most infamous haunted houses in Wisconsin, where someone shot at a ghost. Nothing works. Um, And this is, again, one of these great cases where these things were absolutely impervious to gunfire. They would simply respond by floating down to the ground and running off only to reappear floating back towards the house. So it got so bad that during the middle of the night, um, the family loaded up in the cars and actually went to the police and told them they were being besieged by these strange entities. And so at that point, there was just an absolute frenzy. The police came, um, newspapermen came, the house was then besieged by a completely different sort of disturbance. And of course, as in many of these cases, nothing showed up. There was apparently a strange luminous patch of grass, which disappeared under further um, scrutiny. So, of course, they all decided, well, you know, nothing's here. We're going to pack up and go home. No sooner did the police and the newspaper people leave, the beings were back, and they continued attacking the house until sunrise. Um, So this case, I mean, again, it's considered a real classic um, in the field of ufology. But the intriguing thing is really when you look at you know, the luminosity of the beings and the way that they behave, they seem almost like spectral in nature, um, which is just absolutely, again, you have these kind of cross-boundary sort of um, aspects to many of these cases. And, you know, it's just, it's really amazing too because you also have the consistent attack of the beings um, by the family members and nothing really took and they just kept coming at the house in waves, which is absolutely just, terrifying when you think about it. If you actually think uh-huh. put yourself in that home um, and there's this absolute unknown just coming at your house, I mean, that would be traumatizing and you can't really do anything to protect yourself or your family members. The intriguing thing too though is that actually the matriarch of the house, Mrs. Langford, um, did state that she really didn't feel like they were under any sort of harm. As a matter of fact, she <laughs> was quoted as saying that she just told everyone to calm down and they'd probably go away, but of course no one listened to her. So again, reading the source material and seeing these interviews is also just so, so interesting to see the different personal responses of people in these situations. Because then um, June, uh, one of the wives, she was so frightened she actually refused to look outside. So she was actually a non-witness in this case. She just absolutely refused. She was like, I'm not looking out the window. I'm not going to see whatever's going on out there. So to see that, you know, different personal response by witnesses to the unknown is just, that's one of my favorite
2: mm-hmm.
0: aspects of this case.
2: And bring up um, that this case study is really not too far from Edgar um, you know, stomping grounds Um uh, is there any kind of connection with him or is it, it, it just a uh, coincidence?
3: Oh, you are totally right. Yeah, Hopkinsville, um, which, of course, this is usually referred to as the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter, um, does have the claim to fame as being the birthplace of the famed clairvoyant Edgar Casey, the sleeping prophet. Um, and I know some people do kind of tie, you know, his life and his abilities to the event that happened here. Um, As to me, you know, that's always my question with this. How much of it is synchronicity? How much of it is coincidence? I mean, I'm definitely not going to say that there isn't a connection.
2: Hmm. And as we kind of were getting, shifting from the frogmen to, you know, the Hopkinsville Case. Um, Yeah, you mentioned that both of them happened in 1955. Um, The was it the second uh, Loveland um, sighting was in 1972. There were um, a whole bunch of other cases that happened the early 70s as well. Um, for example, the Roro in Indiana, the Case 16, the light crossing the road. Uh, do any of those dates correspond with uh, uh, who knows what? Uh, some cycle where you know these animals, cryptids appear.
3: I know that um, a lot of people have a lot of different theories as to certain cycles um, of you know different things. I know sunspots have been theorized as causing paranormal phenomena to flare up, uh, geomagnetic issues, and things like that. Um, I am not. I've never really pinned any of that down because for me, it seems like as soon as you start to pin down, oh, here's here's what corresponds there, here's what seems to be making this happen, you'll have something pop up that absolutely refutes that. Um, I will say, though, that, you know, the early 70s is probably my favorite uh, time to research. You know, just because, I mean, even in my book alone, I have quite a few cases spanning specifically 72 and 73. Um, It seems like Mm -hmm. there was simply just a real concentration of weirdness at that time. Um, But, yeah, as far as pinning down cycles, you know, Yeah, I mean, that is a great question. It's one of my many questions regarding the paranormal is what is the cause of this? Why do certain things happen in certain Mm -hmm. places at certain times to certain people um, and not others? And it really seems as though if you change one variable, the whole thing is different. Um, Because I do think that, too, the witness particularly and, you know, who they are and their personality and um, even their family history possibly, their experiences that may also have something to do with it. Um, So, yeah, that is the cycle thing. There's a lot of, I think, intriguing room for um, looking into that. And there's probably some correlation there. Um, I think that, again, with the paranormal, it is my belief that I really don't think we'll ever find the one thing that, you know, causes it or the one cycle or the one, you know, particular aspect or the one variable. I think that it's likely going to be a whole can of worms um and as to what those are you know that's anyone
2: i just uh w- wondered about the date i i, I was uh, you got me thinking about things like that you know why somebody is kind of like mid 50s you know and get into you know braxy the flatwoods monster you know it's uh, about the same time period Do you have several other of your cases all appear, like after the um, Gimlin film? Yeah. yeah, yeah, You just kind of wonder why why now, Why, why in this certain time space there were a number of sightings or some kind of really unexplained event.
3: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, and that's, you know, I have the same question whenever there is a particular like, you know, anomaly flap. Um, and again, we usually use that term specifically for UFOs, but I I tend to throw in the whole kit and caboodle because where there's a UFO flap, you know, so many times there's also going to be a creature flap and a poltergeist flap. So I just prefer to them Mm -hmm. all as anomaly flaps by now. Um, you know, because, yeah, what causes that? Um, it's kind of like, too, trying to figure out almost where lightning is going to strike. Um, because, of course, if we could know, hey, you know, there's going to be, you know, some major event in, you know, next year in Dodge County, Wisconsin. Be there or be square. I mean, then we'd be able to actually show up and be prepared and try to figure out what's happening. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, it's just it is that kind of, you know, gamble. And, you know, I will say that, though, there do seem to be specific places that just are known for having strange events. Again, I should know I'm from Wisconsin. We've got three UFO capitals of the world here. Um, But, you know, even with that, you can go to a place that's known for being haunted or known for having UFOs or known for having um, Bigfoot encounters or dogman encounters. And, you know, I mean, paranormal investigators will know this all too well. They'll go to the place and be ready to see something and nothing will happen. Um, And then again, you'll have the person going home from work on a Tuesday night, just like any other night, and they're the ones who's going to see, you know, a dog man crossing the road in the light of the UFO. So, yeah, these are the questions, you know, trying to figure out, again, we don't know what we're dealing with here. Um, We're trying to even figure that out and then trying to figure out, too, what is making it manifest? Why is it deciding this time instead of that time or this person instead of that person? I mean, these are definitely the questions that, you know, I mean, they keep me up at night.
0: Mm-hmm. No, it, it, it's it's
2: something where y- you want to know why if you're a reporter researcher. That's I think it's a valid valid question to ask. And
0: oh, definitely, yeah.
2: Yeah, and um. Now, also, as uh, part of your book, um, you had uh, Chad Lewis write the foreword. He's a nice guy, very well respected in the uh, paranormal community. Um, How did Chad get involved with writing the foreword to your book.
3: That was honestly, I'm so surreal for me and I'm just so very thankful that he wrote that because I have literally grown up going to Chad Lewis's presentations. I first met him when I was like 11, I think um, at one of his many book signings um, and present and speaking engagements. And so, yeah, I've been to so many of those throughout the years and he's just been a fantastic Um, mentor and friend in this. And so when I told him, you know, I was writing the book, I, you know, approached him and asked if he would be interested in writing the foreword. And, you know, I was absolutely honored that he accepted, which seriously, every time I even think of it, I just, you know, it makes me smile because for me, you know, growing up, I've had an interest in all things strange for as long as I can remember. Um, But specifically the paranormal, um, it started with cryptozoology when I was about eight years old. And so from that point on, growing up, it's been paranormal researchers and investigators and authors. Um, those are the people that I really look up to. You know, those have been my idols. And so to have Chad write the forward was just so, so fantastic. Um, yeah, it, that was just awesome. And he really, it truly, very, very kind words. So, yeah, that was fantastic.
2: Yeah, he, he, He's a real nice guy. I met him. Oh, yeah. Um, at one of the Mothman festivals, and spoke with them for a while at his uh, tent, and I think Kevin Nelson was with them as, as well. And I, I I thought both of them were uh, very uh, knowledgeable. It was just fun sitting around talking with them that afternoon
0: oh
3: yeah
2: yeah
3: I know they're just they're Go fantastic ahead. guys and also just amazing mm-hmm. researchers um, and I know too with Noah Voss they wrote of course the Van Meter visitor book which I mean is just mm-hmm. an excellent case um, and really that is amazing to me too because that's something that really kind of would have just you know gone by the wayside if they hadn't really re- resurrected it. Um, and now with the Van Meter Visitor Festival, you know, they really kind of brought that back to life. Um, and when I see that, too, I think of how many cases exactly like that probably have just been lost to history. Um, you know, because it's like you have these old sources of information um, and stuff like that, it gets lost or destroyed in the shuffle so often. Um that really is quite a gem.
2: Yeah, yeah. Th- uh and that they, they got uh, a lot of uh acclaim for the uh Wendigo book that's uh, yeah. that's interesting um uh, yeah, uh, they yeah that um uh, Chad's uh group has, has uh a lot of really uh, uh good good things going for them uh with uh, publishing, uh you know, their their uh interviews. Um you know, they're yeah, you know, they're they're doing everything right. But
0: oh the, yeah. And I Oh I, yeah. I um go I, I go, go ahead and No, oh, yeah, when Lore, too. lower oh, two. Yeah. That, that's that a was...
2: really good hmm.
3: That was excellent. I mean, you know, so often, and I actually I did a review of that for my website a while back. Um, and truly, you know, that to me was such an important read, um, simply because, you know, so often when people talk about the Wendigo, and, you know, Chad and Kevin even in the book discuss this very fact, you know, they look at it simply from the concept of Wendigo psychosis, which does not do justice to the rich history Um, of sightings and beliefs about this. And so the fact that they really took the time and did such a comprehensive look at every single angle of this one particular, you know, and it's not even one particular belief, it's a whole slew of different beliefs and, you know, creatures and histories. Um, That was just, I mean, they did a very amazing and respectful job for, again, something that so often is kind of just written off. Um, I know I absolutely love
2: that book and, and
0: you know,
2: early on uh one of the first you know first cases or so uh we were talking about um you mentioned the uh dogs appear in many of your case studies um, they're in um, the space leprechaun um the one that's kind of like a uh chapter seventeen um almost like a kangaroo type uh cryptid carrying a dog there's um another one chapter uh case 15 is set, set in Indiana in uh June uh 1970 so um uh, what how do some of these uh, Uh, motifs like dogs fit into the paranormal studies and uh, you know four or five cases in which they appear in your book
3: that is a great question something that definitely occurred to me as I you know have just kind of been naturally going through so many of these cases is very often um, a dog features prominently in these cases And now, you know, on the one hand, you look at it like, okay, a dog typically, you know, I mean, anyone who has a dog will know for the most part, um, when something happens, someone's here that shouldn't be here, they freak out, you know, they alert the family. Um, Uh You know, I mean, anyone who, I mean, the old trope of the dog and the mailman is a perfect example of that. So there is that aspect that, okay, if something strange is going on, likely a dog is going to try and bring their owner's attention to it. On the flip side too there's a long-standing tradition across many many cultures that dogs and other animals but specifically dogs have the ability to sense paranormal phenomena Um, if you take this a step further you know we know that um, dogs are capable of you know observing things outside of the human spectrum Um, and they can hear you know much better than we can they can smell Mm -hmm. much better than we can and so if you look at the concept that paranormal events of course one of my favorite ideas Um, comes directly from John Keel, and that is the super-spectrum concept, that many paranormal events, whether it's cryptozoological, ufological, or spectrological in nature, may simply be from a different portion of the electromagnetic spectrum than we typically inhabit and that we can typically observe. Um, So if you look at it that way, it seems very natural that dogs especially would kind of sense something is wrong or off or strange well before we do, So there is all of that. You know, there's kind of just the natural setup that we have where dogs do, um, you know, they serve kind of as guardian. They, you know, are trying to sense if something weird is going on, Um, sort of a protective type, you know, position for them. On the flip side, you know, when you start getting into many of these encounters, and the Trasko space leprechaun is a great example. Um, The entity in question actually said to the witness, we don't want no trouble, we just want your dog. On um, the same day, actually, there was another case that occurred, which was very, very similar to Trasko's encounter, where a young boy saw a handful of what he described as German-speaking spacemen attempt to steal his dog Frisky. Um, so, And two, you even have in the Mothman prophecies one of the very initial encounters was the unfortunate disappearance of the dog Bandit, um, and that actually involved not specifically the Mothman per se, but a strange um, set of spinning red lights. Um, And the dog bandit went down into this field and unfortunately never came back, even though there was, for all intents and purposes, a crop circle in the ground there. So, again, going through this and seeing how many times dogs show up in conjunction with paranormal phenomena, um, that really kind of had me looking almost at the more symbolic aspect of them. And the intriguing thing is that dogs are actually our oldest domesticated animal. Um, And if you look at the history of you know human culture with dogs, we actually see them given almost a degree of like personhood. Um, there are really early, early um, dog burials you know where people actually uh-huh. gave them that respect as being effectively you know part of the family and so the intriguing thing for me is that very often you know I do tend to look at paranormal events as having a degree of symbolism to them and very often what I find is that the symbolism has to do with things that are explicitly human and typically very old symbols of humanity. And so intriguingly enough, kind of this um, contact exclusively with dogs and paranormal phenomena ties right into that. They're one of our oldest symbols. Um, They also represent a really interesting dichotomy. If you look at so many um, of the old mythological examples of dogs, they seem to represent at once two things, Um, specifically guardianship um, and specifically from that guardianship of the dead or of the other world um, and this is across many many different cultures and mythologies on the flip side to that they also represent um kind of you know the very opposite especially if you look at you know in egyptian mythology dogs were associated with death and they were seen as both the desecrators and the protectors of the tomb um, which is why anubis tend to be shown tended to be shown with the head of a jackal so you have, again, this dichotomy where they do represent the beast. They represent that which is wild. They represent um, the desecration of tombs, um, death itself. While on the flip side, they also represent um, fidelity. They represent something that we have conquered. So the beast is given a degree of humanity here. Um, and again, too, they represent the guardianship of the other world and of death in particular. And so to me, it's really very interesting that something that represents such... Um, kind of opposite concepts, but also such very deep and very human concepts consistently tangles with the paranormal. Um, Because again, you know, yes, we have the setup where a dog will likely observe something before we do. Um, It'll likely try to draw its attention to it. But the amount of times that dogs seem to almost be targeted, I find that intriguing as well. And then you have to ask yourself, Mm -hmm. what does that represent? Um, And for me, it does seem as though, you know, in the many cases where dogs you know, are either attempted to be removed or unfortunately are removed um, in a state of high anomaly, such as Bandit and the Partridge encounter with Mothman, you know, it almost seems as though whatever the paranormal is, is seeking to kind of remove that guardianship. Um, and I think that that is, I mean, that's a very kind of poignant way of looking at it, a very poignant symbol. Makes there.
2: sense. Yeah, so, okay.
3: I mean, and, oh, go on, sorry.
2: No, I was just going to say, you, know, you make a convincing point.
3: Thanks. I mean, yeah, and it is, it's is—it's really intriguing, you know, just because, again, the symbolism with the paranormal, you know, we tend to think of these events as being the other, you know, so often, especially like if you look mm-hmm. at it conventionally, we like UFOs um you know the extraterrestrial hypothesis there cryptids are just another you know sort of animal hidden animal or something like that um ghosts i think are the ones that we look at most personally especially when it's believed that they're spirits of the departed um but still we try to make that distinction between humanity us and the other all of that stuff and so it's really really amazing when you start kind of dissecting the symbolism of the other and seeing that it simply reflects ourselves back. That's that's something that I'm kind of chasing down currently.
2: Okay. And, and uh, another really intriguing uh, theme that links several of your case studies is you know, like the bioluminescent aspect of some of these creatures. Um, you know, the Flintwoods monster case. Seems like uh, the space leprechaun might be another one. Uh,
0: you
2: know, glowing eyes from the Sandusky Sasquatch. Of course, you know, the Mothman, uh, you know, that's not in your book, but you're very knowledgeable about uh you know the point pleasant case um and, and you also have one uh transparent case study uh Oro.
3: oh yeah one so, of my all time favorites
2: so, so um maybe kind of link uh, you know generating its own glowing eyes and body uh, theme, what what does all that mean?
3: Light anomalies are a special interest of mine, um, simply because you're absolutely right, they're linked to so very many different, um, not just paranormal cases, but different types of paranormal phenomena. Um, my initial interest specifically with light anomalies is the prevalence of orbs in paranormal phenomena and i'm not talking you know these dust orbs the bane of every ghost hunter's existence um i'm <laughs> talking yeah oh yeah they they are to the ghost hunting what those um chinese lanterns are to ufos um and i guess ghillie suits are probably the cryptozoologists but,
0: um
3: no i'm talking when people observe these glowing spheres of light um, in different places with the naked eye and of course you know they're heavily associated with haunted locations um, people will see these just floating orbs of light in haunted houses um, they're very common in cemeteries and then of course there's a longstanding standing of spook lights which typically and i absolutely love this um, are given some sort of tragic backstory you know that it's the um, lantern of a forlorn w- woman who is stranded at the altar or someone who was killed in a terrible accident Um, So they're heavily associated with hauntings. The interesting thing is they're also heavily associated with UFOs. Um, Tons of UFO encounters are in and of themselves simply these lights in the sky. Um, Other times, too, there will be orbs around other types of, you know, UFO-related phenomena, different types of things that look more like hard and fast crafts. There will also be sightings and strange lights in the area. Now, the interesting thing is that these same lights are observed in conjunction with cryptids. Um, Momo, the Missouri monster, very infamous case, that whole area was beset with spook lights um, around the time of those encounters with the infamous creature. Um, That area actually, too, has a longstanding tradition of spook lights, which apparently just kind of amped up um, during that time frame. There have been people who even see Bigfoot-like creatures. There's a fantastic case from Stan Gordon's Silent Invasion where there was this um, white Bigfoot-like creature, which was actually observed holding an orb of light. And so that was what really kicked off my personal interest in light anomalies, Um, because, of course, orbs are simply, you know, one aspect of that. And then, you know, going through all of these cases, the sheer amount of times that lights or luminescence shows up in conjunction with these strange entities is really staggering. Um, And, of course, John Keel kind of pointed out in The Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings um, that there does seem to be just a prevalence of luminescence of some degree in cryptid cases, and it was actually his determination that possibly, you know, when you see, like, say, a Bigfoot-like creature with these glowing eyes, you might be seeing something that he would have termed paranormal, um, you know, that's kind of like the super-spectrum concept, the concept that what we're looking at might simply be a mask or some sort of temporary manifestation, whereas if you see a Bigfoot that doesn't have that, then there's the possibility that it might simply be some truly unknown, undiscovered creature. Um, So I thought that was a really interesting distinction. But, you know, Uh moving throughout these cases as well, the amazing thing to me is that so many of them do seem to actually be kicked off by either a light anomaly or some strange noise. Um, It seems as though in these cases of high contact, that's kind of the thing, the catalyst almost for the entire case. Um, is people will first notice something as innocuous as light anomalies. One of my favorite examples of this actually was the um, bizarre flight suit entity. Um, and of course, that case occurred in January of 1972 um, near the Battle Creek Bridge in Anderson, California. And actually, strangely enough, one of the key witnesses in this event, who was just a teenager at the time, would later become a serial killer, um, Daryl Ridge. So again, that's just another really bizarre factoid about this case. But the case itself... Um, actually was kicked off simply with the sighting of this large bluish-white light anomaly as Daryl Rich and his friends were just heading out to do some night fishing. Now, as they approached Mm -hmm. the location, the entire event morphed into something infinitely more bizarre. They heard what sounded like a woman screaming. Um, They saw this really, you know, again, in the hall of really strange creatures that I absolutely love. This one is really, really high up on the list of one of the strangest. They said that it looked like it was covered in pouches. Um, It was kind of this greenish, brownish sort of drab or fatigue-type color. Um, It was covered in pouches that one of the witnesses described as looking like pouches on a flight suit. And it had a large teardrop-shaped ear on only one side of its head. Now, when it saw the kids, it actually turned and ran away. They did the same thing. Um, Their car didn't start at first, so it's another really, really common aspect of these cases um, finally they yeah. got out of there but they were by no means out of trouble yet because the entire way that they fled home they were beset by light anomalies they said that the field to the roadsides were just full of these orbs of light um, which were moving around um, there appeared to be these soundless firecrackers going off in the ditches and at one point there was even an orb which appeared to morph into a luminous man-like figure now intriguingly enough As soon as they crossed a certain intersection, everything stopped. All the anomalies were simply done. Um, They actually even went back to the area with uh, Daryl Rich's father. And by that point in time, nothing else was visible, though they did um, experience a strange noise, which prompted all of them to just leave the area. Um, The police apparently staked out the place, but nothing further was seen or experienced the rest of the night. But this case again, you know, the light anomalies were so prevalent here, and again, this is a case that has an actual, you know, we would consider to be um, some sort of creature or entity, which was kicked off by a light anomaly. And so, yeah, the prevalence of these things, you know, some people have theorized that that might actually be the only real part of the phenomenon um, are these lights, and everything else is some sort of illusion or almost mask, if you will. And you know, I think that. I think there's definitely some worth to that way of thinking, just simply due to the prevalence um, of lights and, you know, luminescence across so many of these
2: cases. Um, yeah, you you do make the point that the orbs seem to precede the main event, um, but you know you. I'll also have you know, since you were just talking about sounds um, in uh case 13 the connecticut uh creatures uh, you get these uh two 14 year old girls listening to music in you know one one of the rooms uh you know the bedroom after school or something like that um uh, and in case 21 you're talking about the river is almost uh emanating a flute-like sound and when ryan fusco was a guest the other week uh he was talking about um a guy set up his piano inside of his barn, and maybe the music is something that attracted the owl man mm. but there there's I... yeah these sounds as as well as the visual uh lights that may have some kind of part in this, uh, in these incidents.
3: That is a fantastic point. Yeah, bringing up specifically um, the Connecticut creatures from Winston, Connecticut. You know, that to me was a really interesting case because you do, know, you have these two young girls who were just sitting, relaxing, listening to music in their room where they saw these um, bizarre, spindly, large-headed things in conjunction with this egg-like luminous object. Um, and that too mm-hmm. that had actually confirmation from other adults on the street who had also yep. observed um, the object in the sky. Yeah, and the back intriguing to
2: the multiple,
0: thing
2: to is that, yeah, yeah, the, the multiple, the, the, witnesses. The multiple eye, yeah, eyewitnesses, yeah, and it, it, I think that's one of the nice things about your book is you know, you're pulling all these different themes together. Okay. I'll, Thank you. Go, uh, um, go 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 back to what you're doing. I just wanted to get the of course.
3: Well, thank you. I mean, that is that is very high praise. Like I said, this is just this book is so um, I'm just so happy about it. Um, that it really means a lot to hear that you know I've done a good job with it. So thank you. Um, mm-hmm. But no, that case when oh. I initially read it, the very first thing I thought of was the strong history in the British Isles, especially of there are so many encounters with the good folk or the fairies where someone would just be relaxing, um, playing music, and that is when the encounter occurred. And so, again, with the Connecticut creatures, it's almost kind of like a modernization of that same concept. Um, But, too, you bring up a fantastic point um, that I've also seen specifically with lights again, where it seems as though the greatest effect that we can have on the phenomenon is also the way that the phenomenon seems to affect us. Um, because, you know, you're just saying that, like, you know, it seems as though sounds have some influence on these things, um, whether it draws them in, or especially, you know, in the case of the Missouri monster, it was this sheer, um, shrill car horn that appeared to frighten it off. On the flip side, I've also noticed that very often, these things also react to our mundane light, um, whether shining flashlights or fire, it seems as though these entities or anomalies or whatever you want to call them, really react to that. The interesting thing is that that is specifically what seems to kind of, again, catalyze the event for us. Um, you know, again, the lights seem to sort of precede the event in many of these cases. Sounds do as well, um, such as the case of the Simonson encounter, probably my personal favorite case of all time, better known as the Alien Pancakes. Um, Joe Simon hmm. first heard a strange noise from outside of his home that he said sounded like knobby tires and wet pavement, um, and that was the very beginning of his encounter, Um, the Sandown Sam case, another truly bizarre encounter was also begun with a strange Mm -hmm. noise.
2: I like that one.
3: Oh yeah. I I love that one too. Um, but it's really interesting because you have this pattern then where it's like, you know, very often, and again, there are no hard and fast rules in the paranormal, it seems, um, because of course there are many encounters where people see the full extent of the anomaly right away. You know, they see the Bigfoot like creature, they see the intricate craft or something like that. Um but a lot of cases are started with something much more vague. And usually that is something as strange as um, a bizarre light, a bizarre sound. Um, Joshua Kutchen, um, in his fantastic book, The Brimstone Deceit, also said that sometimes there's even just an anomalous smell. Um, And so it seems as though it's one of these more vague experiences, which maybe primes the witness for what happens afterward, which tends to be a fuller and far stranger and more bizarre experience.
2: Okay, let me segue into Sandown Sam with all the information you just presented us. And, you know, since we were just talking a little bit about sounds, uh, we actually have um, – he doesn't – he's communicating telepathically. And, and we have a couple samples of what he said. I am all colors, and I think the children asked his name, and he replied, you know, kind of creepy.
3: Very creepy, yes. I Again, I'll say this about every case in this book. I love this case. Um, if I didn't love it, it wouldn't be in here. But, yeah, Sandown Sam is, again, a... Tr- really, really bizarre encounter. Um, It occurred in May of 1973 um, to a seven-year-old girl who was pseudonymously referred to as Faye, which I just, perhaps whoever gave her that pseudonym, because that is just steeped in, um, you know, bizarre connotations um, in this field. And an unnamed boy of about the same age were walking in sand down on the Isle of White, England, when they heard this strange noise that they compared to something like a siren or an odd wailing. And now the strange wailing noise, um, as pointed out by John Keel, is one of the most consistent noises reported in all types of anomalies, but especially in cases of hauntings and poltergeists and also cryptozoological cases. Um, so, of course, that's present here. So they actually decided to follow the noise and try to see, you know, where it was coming from. And they went on a whole trek across a gulf course through a hedge into the swampy meadow when it abruptly stopped. So as the two kids were coming back, they actually crossed a little brook on a a blue-gloved hand popped out from under the bridge. And if you thought that was weird, what followed the blue-gloved hand was even stranger. They claimed that they encountered this seven-foot-tall humanoid-type being with a flat, white, round face um, with really bizarre, it almost sounds like some sort of creepy automaton or robot Um, It had triangles for eyes, a square for a nose, and unmoving yellow lips. Um, It was wearing tattered clothing in this almost kind of like Pied Piper-like or jester-like getup. It had a green tunic with a red collar and a yellow pointed hood. Now, in addition to that, it also had this almost black knob or antennae sticking out of the top of its hood, and on either side were also wooden antennae. Um, and it also had wooden slats protruding from its sleeves and pant legs and again its entire outfit was tattered um, as though it was like in disrepair now when it first came out from under the bridge it was holding onto a book which it then dropped into the water retrieved it and then hopped along to this wood- windowless metal hut nearby now strangely enough and again we see this commonly in these cases the two kids actually weren't really frightened by the creature they didn't really care about it they decided just to walk along as they had been doing. However, when they were you know, some space away from the thing, it showed up again near the metal hut with a microphone. And this is where the story gets very, very bizarre. Because when it showed up with the microphone, apparently the wailing noise started up again and frightened the boy so much that he began to run away. However, at that point, this being apparently began speaking to them into the microphone, though the voice showed up right next to the children. And it said, hello, are you still there? And apparently the children claimed that the voice was so friendly that they decided to go over and talk to it. So you're absolutely right. Um, It continued this really bizarre series of um, communication in different ways. So initially it spoke into the microphone and the voice showed up right next to them. Um, That in combination with the unmoving yellow lips reminds me of many cases of hauntings where people will say that a ghost will talk to them and the voice will show up right in their ear while the face of the apparition is not moving. Um, So again, really creepy um, and strange and cross-boundary mm-hmm. detail there. Because then, after it did that, when they walked over to it, it wrote a jumble of words out in the book and pointed to each word in order, which then say spoke aloud, and at that point, the message read, Hello, and I am all colors, Sam. Now, the communication here then kind of went back to the use of just speaking. So again, the lips were never seen to move, so it was just simply this almost disembodied voice in conjunction with this strange creature. And so they asked him, first of all, this is a great icebreaker. These kids were like, well, why is your clothing all ripped up? And his only reply was that it was his only set of clothes, which doesn't really answer the question, but he didn't bother to, you know, get into that. So then they asked if he was really a man, to which he replied, no. So their next question, I guess, was the only other option they could think of, which is, are you a ghost? To which he said, well, not really, but I am in an odd sort of way. And it was at that point, which, like you mentioned earlier, probably one of the most chilling aspects of this whole thing, they asked what he really was, and Sam replied, you know. So this encounter lasted for a good half hour. Eventually, the two children even ended up going into this being's windowless metallic hut. They claimed that one, it was two stories on the inside, and one appeared to have almost like an electronic-type feel with metal panels and buttons on the walls, whereas the other story was homey. It had like a wood furnace and wallpaper. And while inside, they talked about a variety of things, um, such as the fact that Sam told them that he gathered berries at certain times in the evenings and that he had to clean the river water to drink it. And again, creepily enough, that there were more things like him in an additional camp on the mainland. Now, again, this is a really, really trippy, bizarre encounter. Um, And it culminates eventually in this bizarre conjuring trick where he actually, this being put a berry into its ear, nodded its head forward, and then the berry vanished from the ear and reappeared in one of its eyes. He repeated the action and it ended up
2: in his mouth. That was weird.
3: Yes, this whole encounter is weird. Um, And, you know, a lot of people are ready just to write it off because, okay, you have two kids, they made up something crazy or whatever. However, the thing that makes me really, you know, wonder about that. Is the fact that Faye's father claimed to have had previous sightings of strange lights in the sky for years Um, he claimed that he would be followed sometimes by these bizarre orbs of light Um, he eventually there was this one encounter where he was watching it for so long that he actually got bored with it and decided to just continue on his journey but when he came back out of his friend's house the lights were still hanging in the sky Um, and again these encounters occurred for years and years Um, and finally kind of culminated in him seeing these two large spots of light out in the ocean, which he compared to the eyes of the great beast. Now, that was still some years before his daughter's experience. Um, but, you know, whenever you have, like, family members experiencing anomalies, it does seem as though there's a higher tendency for their family members to also experience anomalies. Um, mm-hmm. And again, the interesting thing with Sam is that truly this case is very odd, and the children themselves came to the conclusion that either what they had witnessed was a ghost or a man in a costume. Um, I'm going to go on the record right here and say that if it was a guy in a costume, that is infinitely more scary to me than if it was some sort of super-spectrum-type anomaly. However, if you look at the messages and even especially the Barry thing, there are a lot of things that tick many of the boxes for, again, um, the fairy face. Specifically, and I know it's such kind of an odd detail, um, but the fact that this being was talking about how it had to clean the river water to drink it and also um, said that it collected berries at a certain time of day. We see these same patterns, um, these same descriptions in the folklore of the fairy face. Um, you know, specifically that there are certain rules certain times of day where you don't go near the berry patch, otherwise you will be taken by the good folk. So it's a really bizarre, intriguing case um, and really creepy, especially when you think of the fact that It did. It had an almost kind of clown-like getup. Now, most kids that I know are afraid of clowns, um, but you have to wonder if this was some sort of attempt to seem friendly. And the really scary thing is that it worked. You know, even though the kids didn't really care at first, and then when the odd wailing started up, the boy was frightened. Whatever this thing was, whether it was, you know, some sort of bizarre manifestation or, as they um, theorized, some man in a costume, it won them over. You know, it spoke to them for half an hour. He invited them inside to its home and they stayed there. So it definitely, it's a very freaky case for a variety of reasons.
2: And you draw the analogy of uh, to probably uh, a story that, you know, we're, Yeah, here in elementary school, uh, three billy goats gruff.
3: Ah, yes. And, yeah, the inclusion of the bridge in this case, that's another one of those symbols that appears time and time again in these encounters, um, are bridges Mm -hmm. and waterways. And Mm -hmm. it's really, really interesting because, yeah, that did immediately to me call to mind the three billy goats gruff, which, of course, features the troll living underneath a bridge. I am. And two, there's a reason for that. You know, bridges have a long-standing history, not just in you know what we consider the current kind of modern paranormal era, era of being associated with anomalies, but also different paranormal or folkloric beliefs. Um, and again, too, they serve as this symbol, um, kind of of a crossing point between two worlds. And so I think that you know whenever you have something that's symbolic and it makes an appearance in one of these cases, it's definitely worth looking into. Especially, you know, this occurred. Um, again, on the Isle of Wight, and so even in that area, you know, bridges are long associated with, again, the fairies, demons, um, even the black shuck or the black dog. So they do have a lot of like folkloric concepts tied atti- tied to them.
2: But yeah, the, you also find it in uh, uh, Robert Burns' Tam o' Shanter, where the uh, yeah. witches could uh, witches couldn't uh, chase beyond bridge because Mm it was crossing Yeah, yeah, running water.
3: Yeah, the crossing of waterways is a very it's in many cultures it's this long-standing symbol that certain paranormal entities are unable to do so. Um, I know too the painting of um, poor troops in the color paint blue in the American South. um, That's even thought to ward off spirits because it looks like running water which they can't cross. We even see that more popularly in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow with the Headless Horseman, um, that mm-hmm. it can't cross running water. Um, of course, there's Dracula, which ties to much older beliefs, actually, about specific, um, a particular type of vampiric figure from Greek mythology, which was thought to be unable to cross running water. So, uh, yeah, that's one of those things. There are, just, there are so many concepts um, that show up time and time again. The intriguing thing here, though, too, is that, and this is what I mean when I say once you pin something down, it's like two other things rise up in its place to refute it. Um, Because for as many times you'll have an entity or, you know, a folkloric belief that these things can't cross running water, many of these things are seen in water, um, specifically originating from waterways. Some people even believe that water generates paranormal phenomena. So, you know, yeah, it's like there's so many of these concepts that kind of point in two directions at the same time. Um, But definitely there does seem to be a pattern that they are at least important.
2: Yeah and another theme that connects several of your uh case studies and you, know, you brought up uh Sandown Sam was wearing blue gloves um you know the Flatwoods monster uh case had uh, you know, this long green robe and I, I don't know if you consider his uh, like candle flame red head uh, some kind of apparel um but it, you know there are some of the uh um oh like the one uh, you mentioned with the uh looked like he was wearing pocket uh pockets you, know, you have a couple other examples of um these cryptids and ets wearing oh, what was the turtleneck one? i just remembered that one. Um Simon
3: oh, Simon's encounter, the, yeah.
2: Yeah it, yeah with the um you know just clothes usually don't seem to be a part of, um, of the par- paranormal case studies but you know you're making a case that um you know, they are uh yeah you know, there there are a few cases where uh, they are addressed um you know I think one of the last times you were on uh as a, you know get guest on nightlight uh you, you spoke about the, um you had researched some of the uh, lettering on clothes uh michael carter's been a guest he's spoken about uh the the visitors that he had were wearing uh, you know, like the Ray-Ban sunglasses and uh, like tinfoil suits. So so there are a number of cases where we do fine clothing. Um, you know, what is that revealing about these uh, creatures?
3: That is another one of my very kind of Neat things that I'm interested in with this um, is the clothing of it, these strange
2: entities.
0: Yeah,
2: it really it, it, it it's it's one of mine too. It, it, you know, is it resembling some kind of hierarchy? Uh, it, it's very different than the E.T.s in <clears throat> at the end of uh, Close Encounters.
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know the thing is, and you bring up a great point even talking about um, the green like, I, I don't even know if you can call it like a cloak covering because the uh, Flatwoods monster was really a super metallic looking entity. But still, you have this um, silhouette that actually has been compared in some regards to almost like when you think of like a classic, very scary witch. Um, even the huge hooded collar to me calls to mind, you know, the iconography of like, you know, the old fairy queens and things like that. Um, and if you see too, you know, again with Sandown Sam, it's this, um, tattered, jester-like outfit. And so the really amazing thing is that you have so many encounters with beings that, you know, in our current mindset, we would consider to be visitors from outer space. But their clothing, their apparel calls to mind, you know, very, very old iconography, um, typically associated, you know, very often with like the fairy faith or almost with uh, religious icons. You see a lot of tunics, robes, things like that. Um, again, too, you bring up a great point with the Simon encounter The turtlenecks, that's a case that's kind of at a crossroads because they had these
0: Mm -hmm. pointed
3: knit caps, which definitely called to mind many cases, again, of the fairies, which were said to wear these literally little pointed caps. Um, However, also, they're wearing these black turtleneck suits with a track stripe, um, which is just indicative the case happened in the early 60s, um, kind of of like the space age fads of mod fashion. And so, you know, yeah, the clothing is really, it's interesting to me because to me, it's just one of those details that seems very apt um, to kind of cement certain patterns and reflect back certain belief systems um, It's something interesting to me. But also, when you really kind of take a step back, um, and this is something that, you know, I'll admit actually even kind of weirded me out because I presented on this particular subject at the Van Meter Visitor Festival. And, you know, talking about the clothing, at some point, you know, the Loveland Frogmen are a great example. It's very difficult, especially with UFO occupants, to ascertain what exactly is clothing and what is the entity itself. Um, There have been even some contactees and abductees who have said that they feel as though what they're seeing is some sort of suit or drone. Um, And so all of these, you know, observations are of interest to me because it's like, what are we exactly looking at? You know, are we seeing what we think we're seeing when we're experiencing any sort of anomaly? Um, But no, regarding just kind of, you know, the iconography of these things, there are so many patterns that exist, again, between different types of phenomena. And one of them is facelessness. You know, and so often um, there are many, many spectral cases of these faceless ghosts. Um, One of the most famous ones are like the faceless nuns or the faceless monks or the banshee which kind of exists at a crossroads between um, what we would consider to be like an apparition or a haunting. It actually is more heavily associated, again, with the fairy face, Um, was often observed wearing a veil, which absolutely covered the face. Um, Then you move across to UFO occupants, and sometimes people claim that they're seeing these things and they're wearing a helmet that totally obscures the face, you know, until you can't see it, or maybe you can only see the eyes. But then you take another step across to um, Momo, the Missouri monster, and many other cases of these cryptids, which are observed, and people say, well, the hair was so long, you couldn't see the face. There have even been very old Mm -hmm. descriptions of, like, wild man, where they say it was almost like a veil of hair. And, you know, it's amazing, but actually, because I did a visual presentation as well for Van Meter. And so I was collecting, of course, all sorts of images, and I was on the particular faceless slide, and I had gathered you know, a picture, an illustration of Momo, the Missouri monster, and I had found an image of Banshee and a ghost um, and a UFO occupant, and I had them all together. And you know, I just kept working, and then I returned to the slide later, and it was one of those kind of just like, you know, moments where things just fit into place, because after taking a break and looking back, what you're looking at effectively is the exact same silhouette, you know, across cryptology, spectrology, folklore, and ufology. You know, we're looking at effectively the same thing, just kind of reflected through different belief systems, um, or reflected through different circumstances. And so, yeah, with the clothing, you know, that too—it's amazing because you really do see um, the same things popping up just across the boundaries. Um, another really weird thing is actually the prevalence of plaid, because um, of course John Ciardi yeah. really nailed that down in *The Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings*. He said an inordinate amount of ghosts, apparitions—you name it—seem to wear plaid. Um, also, that at the time of that writing um, seemed to be kind of an up-and-coming bedroom-invading type entity were these plaid-shirted men. Now, intriguingly enough, there are some cases of clothed Sasquatch-like creatures and even clothed man-wolf or dog-man type creatures. Um, and this was pointed out by Linda Godfrey of her books, as well as in Where the Footprints End um, by Kutchen and Renner. And strangely enough, one of the patterns most often observed on these, for all intents and purposes, cryptids is also planned. So yeah, the clothing thing, I know, and whenever I bring it up, people kind of like chuckle at first. They're like, really, you know, the clothing of UFO occupants and cryptids? I'm like, yeah, the clothing, you know, there's any detail we can get about this um, is something worth studying, in my opinion.
0: Yeah,
2: and the, it's, you made it, uh, I thought there you know there were just a few examples of clothing uh but you made the case that it's actually a lot more extensive than a few cases I did not did not realize that but it it it, it that's a really fascinating aspect of uh, uh paranormal studies uh it, 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 the, the faceless uh creatures is uh, uh yeah disturbing it, it you don't not being able to see uh eyes what the eyes might uh be revealing about it you know is a kind of empathetic or you know uh, or they kind of squinted as if it um, you was know, honing in on you to uh turn you into a meal you know something like that <laughs> you, know, the, you know one of the effective uh, uses of uh concealing the face is in jaws you know you even know, see what what the shark looks like to almost the end of the movie but uh, yeah. It, it's uh, it, yeah it, it, kind of dehumanizing some kind of human humanoid like figure but you really can't figure out, uh, have some kind of identification with the face really does uh, make it a very unnerving situation.
3: Oh, definitely. I mean, I I can truly think of very few things more terrifying than a faceless being. Um, Because yeah, you know, not only is there our brains take up so much space specifically for identifying and decoding um, faces. I mean, and then, you know, that's, that's why too, like there's the, uh, you know, the concept of matrixing where it's like, you know, you'll look at effective like a Rorschach or something and you'll make Uh faces of it simply because that's a huge part of programming, um, you know, for people. And so when you see, see something that lacks that, Um, there's kind of a a shock just of like, what then, what is the process trying to do? You know, you're seeing something that should have something that you can relate to and something that you can identify, um, and that's simply not there. You know, two, I mean, it really launches something from, you know, I feel like with the paranormal, there's kind of, there's like the typical paranormal, which is, okay, this is very strange, but I can still kind of make it work. Um, Like if you see, you know, yeah, like a Bigfoot-like creature. And, you know, I'll totally admit for as much as I tend to prefer the concept that, you know, all types of paranormal phenomena are connected um, and likely are not exactly what we think we're observing. um, I also have a major soft spot in my heart for the concept that there may also be a population of, you know, some undiscovered primate living in North America um, to account for a small portion of the Bigfoot phenomenon. Um, I do think that a lot of the cases are that extra strange stuff. Um, but, again, I'm very, I'm very nostalgic for the concept that, you know, they're likely. And I think that in all likelihood there possibly could be. Um, but That's a whole whole other kind of can of worms. Um, but, no, so there's the typical paranormal where it's like, yes, it's still a shock to the system, especially if you had no interest before or were skeptic um, to see, you know, a large, an eight or nine foot tall, you know, undiscovered primate walking across the road. But then Uh there's like the ultimate, okay, we are now in the middle of the twilight zone. Um, And that would be seeing, yeah, that same primate that now has no face. Um, Because of course, too, you kind of have to reframe it. You can no longer look at it as something that might physically make sense. It's now something that physically does not make sense. Um, And so there's that initial shock, and then there's that further shock of having to reframe and figure out what exactly am I looking at? Um, Uh And so I think that's why that is especially frightening to people, um, is that when we see that, you know, it's like we try to rationalize so much, and that's another great concept in so many of these cases. When people are first hit with the unexplained, the first inkling that they have, the knee-jerk reaction, usually isn't to say, oh, wow, I just saw a monster from outer space. I mean, you know, the Flatwoods monster is a great example. When they first, you know, saw these glowing eyes, the entire posse thought that it was a raccoon up in a tree or one of my Mm -hmm. favorite cases of the walking tree stumps. Um, The initial sighting by these two young girls, they at first thought that, you know, there was a fire in a neighboring field and then later when they saw these strange lights, they actually thought someone was playing a prank on them. You know, very often most people when they observe the unexplained their first reaction is to try and explain it, and so when you're hit with something that is truly unexplainable, you can't rationalize it away, and you can't even rationalize it into something that you could conceivably comprehend. Um, that is very unnerving for people. I feel. Yeah,
0: and
2: I, I think you're, and that is one of the reasons why I've. Uh, delve into Keel called the uh incomprehensibles. Ah
0: oh, yes. Yeah.
2: And uh, I it, it 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 even with the the children from the uh um first case, the um Nodolph incidents um or, you know supposedly they had speech impediments after the event you know there you know that is a real um side effect of the traumatic event oh definitely,
0: um, yeah
2: yeah but um but you know there are also other things that you know, we try to rationalize, you know, had a bear run in front of, you know, the car. You know, I didn't hit it. And it just you know, happened to cross the street. And said sit there and think, it's oh, a really, that was a really big dog. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, 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 it takes, you know, it takes you a while to figure out uh, that, you know, I wasn't, I, I didn't, to, uh, anticipate seeing a dog, deer, something more normal than a bear. And it it takes you a a while to realize what you actually saw.
3: That is a fantastic point. Um, Because I know when when you see something even just out of the ordinary, I'm not talking paranormal, but like your example of the bear is a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, you know, in Wisconsin, wolves are not – very common around where I live you know they, they've been reintroduced and so they're starting to become a little bit more of a population there but right. uh, my mom several years ago she was driving you know near I think Elkhorn or Lake Geneva you know, strangely enough near Bray Road and she saw a wolf and her initial response like you know knee-jerk reaction was well dang that's a big coyote <laughs> you know just because I mean, we're not used to seeing that um, in the area where we live. And so your brain really does, you know, for the people who say that, oh, well, you know, people just like to make that up. They jump to conclusions, this, that, the other, you know. Yes, I'm sure that there are some cases of truly mistaken identity where people think they've seen Bigfoot and it's just someone in a parka. Um, But, like, on the flip side, for most of these cases of high contact where someone has the chance to really observe um, the event or the anomaly or the creature their usual first reaction is that it is something normal. Um, and, again, your perfect, perfect example is the bear and, you know, then too with the wolf, you just think to yourself, mm-hmm. "Oh, that's a big dog. <laughs> you know, many people actually tend to um, underestimate the strangeness um, and try and tone it down before jumping to even just a slightly out-of-the-beaten-path conclusion.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: No, it's... Uh, yeah the human uh perception is something interesting to you know, that needs to be incorporated into the paranormal studies sounds um, yeah and
4: yeah
0: and,
2: and yeah you, know, you, know, you you happen to bring up uh, uh you know, your mom driving by the uh, Bray Road Uh, if people enjoyed uh, your analysis of uh, so many uh, intriguing uh, paranormal cases um, you will be a presenter at the Beast of Bray Road conference um, l- later this spring. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that as well?
3: Oh, definitely. And I am very excited to be a part of that because um, Linda Godfrey, when I met her when I was 10, that was like really a life-changing ex- experience for me. Um, you know, at that time, I was deeply enveloped in my obsession with cryptozoology. And, you know, yeah, to be that young kid and to see that, you know, there's an adult person, a Wisconsinite, a woman who is taking this seriously. Um, and, you know, really looking into it, that was a huge, huge moment for me. So I am really very thrilled to be presenting there. Um, yeah, the Beast of railroad Road uh, celebration is, I think it's the, it begins on Thursday, April 28. Um, and then it continues through Friday and into Saturday. And Saturday is like the actual conference with speakers and everything. Um, so, yeah, the 28th, 29th, and 30th, and I am very, very excited to be presenting there.
2: So, okay, my talk it, is it, going it, to it, be... Oh, sorry. Oh, it, it, is there a website f- uh, for it, or just Google uh, yeah, so Bray Road Conference?
3: Yeah, look up uh, Beast of Bray Road Conference 2022, um, and it'll pop right up. So, And I'm going to be speaking on UFOs and the cryptid connection, which is something very near and dear to me. Um, You can probably tell from the cases I've included in my book. So, yeah, it's going to be awesome.
2: Okay, and uh, let's see, what else can we get into? Um, There's the flopped projections. What did you mean by that?
3: That is a concept I came up with um, specifically in looking at – you mentioned some of the incomprehensibles, which that is one of my Mm -hmm. favorite terms that Keel used. Um, So specifically, you know, the Enfield Horror, which was this strange three-legged pink-eyed thing that just kind of bounced through this small Illinois town in 1973, or the Dover Demon, um, which, of course, showed up in Dover, Massachusetts in April of 1977. It was this – Thing, this spindly creature with a huge, um, kind of watermelon-sized head, and it just showed up for a few sightings and then vanished. And so my concept of flopped projections is that it kind of piggybacks off of Keel's concept and many other um, researchers have theorized that paranormal events seem to be kind of just temporary manifestations um, that they are, you know, possibly in some way, shape, or form, almost projected onto our reality. And so when you have some of these really strange outliers, I I almost wonder sometimes, because very often it's like, there do seem to be certain threads that kind of carry the paranormal field. Um, And even if we are dealing with entities, which are some sort of temporal projection or manifestation, um, a lot of them really seem to fall into certain um, vague appearances, like, you know, Bigfoot-like creatures, or man-wolf-like creatures, or even hellhounds, uh, things like that, which, you know, there's a strong prediction. We have a pattern And we can kind of pile them all into those specific terminologies. But then you get the incomprehensibles, these true outliers. And so my concept is that possibly, um, you know, and again, this is all pure speculation and theorization. But it does seem as though there's kind of a give and take with um, human symbolism and the subconscious. And also kind of the iconography that is prevalent um, almost in the collective unconscious. And I sometimes wonder if something simply gets lost in translation. So instead of getting a really strong symbol of like, you know, the wild man or of the beast, um, we end up with something like the Enfield Horror, which really has no equivalent. It was this strange, again, three-legged being um, that just showed up for a spate of a couple of weeks and a bunch of sightings and then never again. So, yeah, it's just a kind of a concept I have to explain why certain things appear to be so absolutely off the wall. Um, whereas others do seem to kind of attune to um, a certain appearance.
4: Hey, Celia, yeah, d- could could that be a fold in time? Could that be a dimensional fold?
3: I know a lot of people have theorized about that as well, I do wonder about, um, you know, specifically kind of time running into each other, because um, even with, like, you know, haunting-type occurrences, sometimes it seems as though people, you know, we we discuss it like it's a ghost, you know, like it's um, someone who is deceased and their spirit is just wandering the halls. But sometimes it appears like people almost hack into a scene from the past, you know, and that uh-huh. it kind of just overlaps and they get to experience that. So I I've definitely wondered about that as well.
4: I mean, I could see a dimensional fold for sure, where where another yeah, dimension overlapped ours and we got a picture of something that was in that dimension and then. It's it ironed itself out and it went back to its own dimension.
3: Yeah, I've heard I've heard some theories like that too. And I think that there's definitely a lot of room for you know theorization there, just because there truly are. There seem to be you know that concept too that these things flare up and then just you know vanish. Um, that's an intriguing thing to think about that possibly we are just overlapping with something, which then for whatever reason that it overlapped in the first place, it's just done. Um, I know on the flip side, one of my favorite lines of John Keel's ever, he said, we do not know the place where hairy monsters and flying saucers come from, but we do know where they end up. The poor slobs literally melt. Um, So I guess that might be another option. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) But, yeah, I I know. It's just, you know, there's so – I love this field so much. And the truth is, you know, when I started with it – I really thought like as a kid, it was like my life's goal to bag a Bigfoot. I was like, well, here we'll get the proof and then, you know, we can, you know, figure it out. And it'll be like, I always looked at it as like the same as, um, how gorillas were discovered. You know, people thought it was a myth at first and then it became accepted because they had the body. And so then it was like, Oh, okay, well now we know. And so that, you know, now it's just no big deal. That was like my goal. And then when I got into UFOs, I really wanted to find like a crashed saucer, the ghosts. I wanted the proof. Um, But, you know, now, like, as I've been in this and interested in this for so long, um, I've definitely kind of moved beyond that where I'm like, you know, truthfully, with the unexplained, I'm not sure if we ever will fully explain it. Um, And to me, you know, a lot of people kind of look at that as a failure, but I really don't. You know, I think that it definitely we should not stop looking Um, that possibly if this is something that is just unexplained, you know, it's all the more important to keep
4: looking. Oh gosh, you should check out um, Mary Joyce's um, website, uh, Skyships Over Cashiers. She's written a book on Bigfoot Beyond the Footprints, and oh. it's charming because um, she had experience interacting with them. And um, it's 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 a book you it's so sweet you cry.
0: Yeah, I yeah.
4: It's amazing, too, because, you know, so many
3: people paint the paranormal as frightening and not to discount that people do have frightening experiences or they are shocked by what they see, but, you know, it isn't in and of itself always frightening. Um, And I think there's a lot of room for positivity in it. I mean, I know that's that's what I've taken away from it. Um, And again, I always kind of blame it on being interested in it for so long, but it's like a lot of this stuff, you know, really doesn't freak me out so much. Um, I just look at it more with interest than with fear, so...
2: Uh, this has been a terrific show. Um, I think we're only down to like three, three minutes or so. But uh, you're talking about some, you know some of these other patterns, you know, clothes, what, and uh, you know, whatever else that uh, the listeners want to uh, remember from all. You know, the numerous samples he gave um, you, you know keel found a pattern of places like crossroads, intersections, cemeteries, and garbage dumps are mm-hmm. usually places where uh weirdness happens.
3: Yes, and I know I think that, you know, that's definitely something that has occurred to me. I'm like, man, maybe I need to find a garbage dump to, you know, stake out for a Wednesday night or something. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: (laughs) But, you know, the interesting thing is that I feel like, you know, a lot of those places are places um, typically where people don't necessarily like to linger. Um, You know, and it seems as though, interestingly enough, it's kind of like um, the places where we tend to want to move by um and kind of get out of that seems to be where this stuff roosts, uh, if that makes sense. Uh I know people too have theorized that it has something to do with the liminal idea. You know, that especially like intersections, crossroads, things like that, they're not really this place or that place. They're sort of in between. Um I think there's definitely a lot of worth to that line of reasoning. But I think okay, too, yeah. you know, the interesting thing with garbage dumps and cemeteries is that there's a lot of overlap there, especially um historically, you know, that um garbage dumps sometimes were also used for, you know, unfortunately dumping the unwanted bodies of society. So a little macabre, I know, but, uh, you know, I just wonder how all that kind oh. of ties into itself.
2: Uh, uh you, you, know, you get that every, every once in a while, a body was found at the garbage dump. Mhm. Okay. We're, we're getting pretty close to running out of time, but, uh, Zelia, can you tell everyone where to get your book and about the uh, Beast of Bray Road within like fifty seconds?
3: All right. Well, just another tinfoil hat presents is available on Amazon, and that is from Beyond the, the Fray Publishing. Um, for everything else, just look up Just Another Tinfoil Hat. You will find me on the web for the website or YouTube, and then yeah, the Beast of Bray Road conference. That's going to be. April 28th, 29th, and 30th. The 30th is like the speaker presentation day. So thank you so much for having me on the show tonight. It's been a blast.
2: Oh, It, it, it has been. Thank you, Zelia. Thanks, Barbara, for producing the show and uh, chiming in as well. And we'll be back uh, next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you.